back in the studio, ladies and gentlemen. I'm your co-host of the show, Put Them on the Couch, Jason McCoy. Today we have a very special guest in the studio. As part of our ongoing series on The Good Life, we've got a lung transplant survivor, Mr. Bob Brennan. I wanted him to give us some additional perspective on what it means to live the good life. And when I reached out to Bob to tell him about how I thought his story might fit into this podcast series, uh, he gave me an interesting answer to one of my, um, my questions. I asked him, what's the good life mean to you, Bob? And he said, you got to first have a life to even have a good life. Bob, tell our listeners what you meant by that. I think there's a tendency for human beings to look at their situation and then compare themselves to people that are in a better situation and start thinking about, I'm shortchanged, this isn't fair, somebody has this, I don't, yada, yada, yada. Right. And if it's something like wealth or advantage or something like that, it's like, meh, that's the way life is. But I think when it begins to impede on your quality of life, then it has a real tendency to alter your frame of mind or your, your frame of reality to look at the problems you have. I was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis at the age of two, and this was in the 60s. So what they did was they told my parents, keep in mind I'm age two, yeah. to take me home, love on me, because I, I wouldn't make it to six. Now, for those that don't know what cystic fibrosis is, or maybe they've heard of it but don't quite understand it. This is a genetic condition, right? Yes. No cure for it? No. What else should the audience know about it? There are medicines and treatments okay. you can take to kind of ameliorate it, but for the longest time, it was the number one genetic killer of children in the United States for like 50 years in a row. And it's usually a death sentence. In my years, life expectancy has continued to inch up as new therapies come along, as new antibiotics come along, as new treatments come along, and... To be honest, they made some mistakes in the past, but things have gotten better. So life expectancy has continued to expand, but it will kill you in the end. Now, you said mistakes. What do you mean? Uh, for example, in the 70s, there was a, an expectorant they had us take. It was an aerosol, and it tended to inflame the lungs to get you to expel excess mucus because the mucus would tend to get infected, and that would destroy the air sacs in the lungs and... So anyway, and that's they, one of the most significant uh, problems associated with cystic fibrosis, right? Is the mucus builds up so heavy in your lungs, it's hard to get it out, and you literally drown in it. Well, not only that, but it, each time you get sick, mm -hmm. and this is for anybody, yeah, each yeah. time you get pneumonia, bronchitis, or whatever, there is some damage to your lung's ability to process oxygen. Wow. With cystic fibrosis patients, it happens more often. Each time you get sick, it destroys more and more of the lungs. So over time... It continues to diminish, and, and that was one of the things that I think impacted me most was this awareness my whole life. Mm -hmm. You're told you're going to die. Yeah. Now, I understand that everybody's going to die, but I, I feel that patients with chronic and deadly diseases face that on a daily basis. It's yeah. a daily reminder. You know, there's an expiration date hanging over your head. Mm -hmm. How soon is it going to be? And then when you go to therapies, you see other patients. You see them die. Wow. So you've actually seen other patients as part of maybe your group of patients, your cohort, who've died. Oh, yeah. When I started back in the 70s or 60s, 
in uh, New Jersey, mm-hmm. I was part of a 40-person cohort of children, just children. Oh, wow. One by one, we would meet every three weeks, every right. third Friday, and suddenly, you know, we're down one. Oh, my God. It, one family, I knew they had four boys, and they all four ended up getting the disease, and they watched them die. One, one by one. Two, three, four. What was that three. like, going in and there'd be one fewer person in your cohort each time? Interestingly enough, it, it wasn't the death of the children that stands out so much but the death of adults uh we all saw a psychologist a psychiatrist and to help us deal with the situation mm-hmm. and he was a super nice guy he was great everybody loved him uh and then one day we were notified my parents were notified that um he had taken his own life he had left a letter behind and he said that seeing all the smiling bright faces and kids with hope for the future and what they're going to do and what they're going to be when they grow up and then to watch them die he he it just broke him he couldn't take it anymore and he took his own life wow um so you know as a kid you recognize the significance of that this this grown-up is no longer here because he can't handle what he's seeing on a daily basis and you remember that Oh, yes, it was very, very impactful. There was another man. He was a phlebotomist, the guy that takes the blood. And back in those days, they used glass vials, and they had them all in their little separate containers. You know, containers, yeah. And you could hear it rattling down the hallway. And Oh, as he was coming, you could answer. Yes, you, could, you knew he was coming. And they took so many vials of blood from us every time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most people don't like needles anyway, No, you know. So when this guy would come, you'd start hearing the kids screaming. I mean, not crying, screaming, because this was their terrible nightmare, that this guy would come and stab them repeatedly. Every single time they showed up, this guy was like the angel of death with needles. Right. Uh, and eventually he, too, ended his own life because... Seeing all these kids terrified of him, he he broke down and he he could not handle it. So these things really put it in perspective. Even as a child, when you start seeing these things, you understand that this is really significant. Wow. Now, obviously, you were living. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you were thriving, but you were living. Do you know if people asked your parents, hey, what are you guys doing for for Bob or What's Bob doing? Why is his plight look so different? I mean, he, he doesn't appear to be as sick as some of the others. There are a couple of factors that, that qualify you as being diagnosed with um, cystic fibrosis. The most common version is a corruption in the DNA sequence, the Delta F508 gene is messed up. Mm-hmm. And that's for 90% of CF patients. So you had to have a different... Well, that's what they thought. Oh, so they were looking for a genetic explanation for why you seem to be doing so much better. So what they did was they did a DNA sequence on me, and and it tells me something, that they were willing to run the cost for this diagnostic on their own. Not They didn't charge me because they wanted to see, and it turns out I had the most common version of CF. Wow, so they found the exact opposite of what they were expecting. Yeah, they thought I had something to mitigate. Something to explain it. And... No, I fall right in the general category. Were and there then, times during your childhood where you were close to death? 
Oh, yeah. There okay. were multiple times I ended up hospitalized for weeks. That midnight trip to the hospital, you know, I remember one time my uncle drove me to the hospital about 90 miles an hour. What? He's going over the speed bumps and, and the, the up on the median, and I was like, I'm going to die getting to the hospital. What was treatment like when you were young? What, what, what would a typical treatment look like? Describe that for the audience. Okay, so they felt it was bad if the excess mucus were to build up too much. Mm -hmm. So, or and then dry out. So I slept in a tent. So up until I was like eight or nine, I slept in a tent, a plastic tent. For humidity. Yeah, and then they would pump in, basically, it was a humidifier. But, you know, now that is an incubator. <laughs> For infection. Bacteria, yeah. You know, um, so that would happen. Then in the morning, I'd get up and I'd do this percussive treatment. Oh, okay. On the chest, the front and the back, and my parents would help me with this in order to get me to expel whatever was in my lungs that day to keep down the possibility of infection. How long would that last, the, the beating of the chest and the 20, back? 30 minutes, and I'd be hanging upside down. So I'd lay on the bed and I'd hang with my head touching the floor and all the blood rushing. And they'd play the drums on your on your. Back. Back, yeah. Yep. And then um, I always had to have enzymes with my food mm -hmm. because you were saying one of the big problems, of course, is the lungs and the right. infections. But the other big problem is the pancreas is also affected. So many patients with CF don't produce enough enzymes. You could literally starve to death with a full stomach. Wow. And I would take enzymes with my food. Um, that had a corollary effect because I was taking them that were mixed in with my foods. It ate the enamel off my teeth. Mm -hmm. So what would happen is <laughs> uh, I would go to the dentist every six months or so, and then it was not unusual for me to have eight to ten cavities. So how do people treat you, you know, in school, teachers, family members, people in the community? I was treated differently, the, especially for younger kids, the kid that's different. Yeah is picked on, marginalized, you know, I was never picked for sports because I was not very good at them, you know, I just, it, it was just a successive thing, mm -hmm. you know, and you don't fit in. No. You're the nerd, you're the loser, blah, blah, blah. And so that also had a corollary effect on my life because yeah. you're on the outside looking in all the time. Yeah, I mean, you already know you're different and now you're being treated even more different. Right. So... My assumption is this can go one of a couple ways. Uh, you can just sort of lie back and go, well, I've been dealt a bad hand, and uh, I'm just going to let the chips fall where they may, and I'm not going to do anything extra. I'm not going to persevere. Or I'm assuming you went kind of a different direction. Well, <laughs> there's pros and cons to growing up in New Jersey. Um, Regardless of your <laughs> medical status. And um, one of the things I learned at an early age, which you can check out the Sopranos and you'll know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, violence was approved of. You could beat somebody up. You could steal their things. You could physically hurt them mm -hmm. because you wanted to. The only thing you couldn't do was tell on people. In some ways, I, you know, I was usually the smallest guy, but I would get into fights sometimes. I, sometimes I'd lose and sometimes I'd hurt people. Mm -hmm. But again, I lived my whole life by the idea that I was not going to be 
bound by my limitation. You're in high school and you had you do a sport. Most of us probably still remember that. You had to go to your doctor and get a permission slip signed just to cover all the bases, make sure everything's good. So I went to see my doctor and I told him what I was planning on doing. And he said, uh, I really don't think it's a good idea. And I just glared at him. <laughs> and he goes, but you're probably just going to go ahead, get another permission slip. You're going to forge my name on it and turn it in anyway. I said, pretty much. And he goes, oh, okay. So here you go. So he signed it. Yeah. And you were cross country. Yeah, I sucked. I sucked. You know, I almost always came in last, but that wasn't the point. That wasn't the point. I was doing a sport just like every other kid. And one that you weren't supposed to be doing, really, according to the doctor's advice. Well, I was also smart enough. I mean, I'm not going to go out for football. I was like four foot eight about. Uh, 82 pounds. Yeah, you chose a good one. Yeah, I get crushed. Although my guess is that I mean, cross country is pretty demanding. It art, is, but I wasn't worried about cardio somebody, respiratory. You know, a six foot dude tackling yeah, yeah. me. You know, yeah. and like I said, most of the time I would lose, but it didn't matter. That wasn't the point. The point was to do it because a I'm not supposed to, and b I refuse to be limited. So you never allowed the diagnosis, your condition, to be an excuse. Oh, exactly. In fact, if anything, I flipped it. One of the things I want to make sure was I did everything a normal person would do. And some of the stuff was good. Like, I traveled around the world, mm-hmm. you know. I dated girls. I did plays in high school. I did sports in high school. Worked, at, I assume, a oh. part-time job or or more. Yeah, I worked a full-time job in the summers. Of course, I went to school during the school year. and you know, Got good grades. I got into fights. Yeah. I stole things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I beat the living hell out of my brother over and over again. But yeah, I we'll did. have to have him on the podcast, <laughs> maybe get him to call in and uh, give us his take on this. Yeah, yeah. But um, I, I refuse to be bound by the limitations. And what's interesting, because I've had several conversations with doctors you know obviously Mm -hmm. over the 50 years i've been going and that's not an uncommon phenomenon for example what some of these cf patients would do is they would become either bulimic or anorexic why do people do that because it's one of the few things they can control so you can't control the medicines you have to take you can't control the regimen you have to do but the one thing you can change or control is what you put in your mouth. So you have these kids who are already suffering from malnourishment and they're making the problem worse, worse, but it's a psychological reaction to being forced into a box. What would you say you did to control? I got into fight. I did stuff like that um, because, again, that's breaking out of the box. The other thing I find fascinating is some CF patients would take up smoking as the ultimate taboo. You know, yeah. because here you are, you have a lung ailment. What could be the worst thing you could possibly do? So you pushed it, but not that far, obviously. I think I, I think and this is, again, subjective, but I think I pushed it in a positive way mm-hmm. through physical fitness, through pushing my body to extremes. I, uh, when my brother and I were going to move halfway right. through high school, we came from a violent high school, so we just assumed that the next high school we were going to go to was violent. So I started lifting weights. That had a big change on my body. Like, I started 
once I, again, I, I started putting demands on my body and my body responded to it. And that's, that's a, a philosophy I've carried through my whole life is that your, your body, to a certain extent, will uh, adapt to the stresses you put on it. Any kind of exercise science will tell you that. Obviously, there's extremes. I'm not going to go do Ironman triathlons and all that other stuff. But as far as getting up and walking or lifting weights or taking my dog for a walk, these are pushing my body. Now, was this something that was recommended to you? Did, the, did your doctor say, look, you, you need to stay in good physical shape. You need to run. You need to lift weights. You need to swim. You need to stay away from drugs. And so... Um, you did that and more because that's kind of the attitude you always had, or, or is that obviously you- they tell you to stay away from trouble. That's a given. But as far, I mean, yeah, th- in a roundabout way, they're like, oh, you should do more exercise. Right. But for example, like the weightlifting, I mm-hmm. got really into weightlifting. They thought what I was doing was extreme, and I shouldn't do it. But extreme as in you could hurt myself. yourself, or I could not hurt myself, or I could damage myself, or you know that something bad could come out of it. And, huh. of course, I, I put that in the round file and just ignored it and did what I wanted to do. Earlier you said, what, what do you think my, the reason for my survival is? Yeah, well, to and, what would you attribute your success? Well, it's funny because, you know, I kept not dying. I mean, stuff would happen to me. When I was 21, I got very, very ill. I was down to 100 pounds. I'm five foot nine. I look like a skeleton. That's pretty thin. And right now I weigh 180. But you didn't die. No, I have a tendency to not die. I got out of the hospital after being hospitalized for two weeks. And the very first thing I did was I picked out a five pound dumbbell, started doing dumbbells. And then I just worked my way back. And then you knew me at 42, mm-hmm. I ended up coming down with CF-related diabetes. I almost died. My blood sugar was 1,740. <laughs> the average person is about 100. And usually you go into a coma around 600. Wow. The next day, the doctor that treated me walked into my room in the ICU, and he stopped in the doorway, and he looks at me and goes, huh, I didn't expect to see you still here. Whoa. <laughs> Which, that's my sense of humor anyway, so I was fine with that. You know, and then you saw me after my transplant, immediately after my transplant. I had fallen down to about 120 pounds again. And you've seen the picture. I look like a dead man walking. It's obvious that you were different from most people diagnosed with CF. Yes. You said so yourself. Clearly being born and raised in Jersey... 60s and 70s contributed to your own attitude about not giving up, not using anything, let alone your CF as an excuse to not be normal, whatever normal was for you, um, contributed to you getting as far as you are now. Now, I assume 60, 60 plus years of age. Wouldn't it be nice if you found out that your child or that you were in some way different Maybe that would increase your odds of living longer or living a more healthy, successful life. But here you are saying, Bob, you are right smack dab in the middle in terms of uh, why you have cystic fibrosis, the type of genetic abnormality that causes cystic fibrosis. You're run-of-the-mill average. And yet, I mean, you've defied a lot of odds. I think it's 
two things. Number one, um, I've pushed myself my whole life. You know, and we had talked about me weightlifting. And, and this is my conclusion after all this. Getting pneumonia, getting bronchitis, you know, going down to 100 pounds, these things put a massive toll on your body. Mm-hmm. But I feel that because I've always push my body beyond the comfort zone that when I would get ill, I take a hit. But because my body is used to taking a hit and coming back, taking a hit and coming back. You were down, but never out. Right. So that it, it was, Oh, this is going to be a bad, bad couple of days. And attitudinally, I guess as well, right? Cognitively, when you're down that far mentally, you're not thinking, Oh, this is definitely it. You're thinking I've been here before. I've been in deep waters before. I've felt this kind of pain before. Well, when I was 21, when I got when I was down to 100 pounds, they couldn't fix me. Things kept going wrong. They tried a bunch of stuff, it didn't work. And finally, the doctor I was seeing at the time said, "No, nope. sorry, there's nothing we can do. You're gonna die." Now this is in Jersey still. Yep, yep, this is in New Jersey. And he said you're gonna die. And I thought, well, damn. And you know, I had struggled. This was a year-long process, just losing weight, and I couldn't keep food down. I kept, you know, regurgitating it. And Mm -hmm. so I was losing electrolytes. I was losing protein. I was losing everything because it doesn't just come off your body. It comes off your brain. So I'm suffering through all this. And then finally, by August, I gave up. I quit. Oh, wow. I'm done. I fought it for a year. And it, it's, it's hard to explain, but to get beaten every day. For a year. For a year. And I gave up. And then the strangest thing happened. I moved into my uncle's house to prepare to die. And then I changed my mind. <laughs> really? Yeah. Just need to change the scenery, you think? Uh, I just. Or did uh, you want to get the hell out of his house? <laughs> no, I just changed my mind. Uh, my brother and I went and tracked down my old pediatrician who was still practicing. I went to his home, and I told him what was going on. Yeah. And he's like, I'll put you in the hospital if you want. I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Wow. And we went to the hospital, and two weeks later, they fixed the problem, and I was out. I was back on my feet. Now, what are you thinking at this point? Are you thinking divine intervention? Are you thinking no, I I, I, this pediatrician is a sage? Are you thinking, God, the, the medical establishment missed something? Yes. It just seemed like a very casual, no, oh, can't find it. And the fact that they were able to fix it in two weeks, yeah, that made me furious because that kind of damage, that leaves permanent scars on your lungs, on your liver, on your heart, you know. Sure. I was damaged. Yeah. Now, people, I, I came of course, back. not to mention on your psyche. I mean, people would, would call that um, post-traumatic stress. They would say that you, you lived through trauma. The way I looked at it is it reinforced my egotistic view. I was going to say your narcissism. Right. And the idea that, well, if I really feel like something should get done, like yeah. going to a different doctor and getting this done. Then you got to do it. Then... That's what saved me in the end. Yeah, your own advocacy. Right. Not the hospital, not the doctor, not whoever. I saved my life. 
So I don't really think of that as divine intervention because no. divine intervention, I would have woken up and a lightning bolt would have hit me and boom. I changed the dynamic and it worked. Mm -hmm. So it reinforced in the future that when I make a decision, it'll be my decision because they've made mistakes. And the other thing is my family is <laughs> very hard to kill. We come from a long line of people who are just really hard to kill. They have a tendency to either die from murder or suicides. Natural causes aren't going to do it. No, it's not going to take me up. My grandmother's brother disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> I'm like... You guys are pretty sure he took himself out. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Or maybe supernatural that took him out, which yeah, is yeah. like, okay. Again, well. beyond the norm, beyond <laughs> the natural. But I was like, well, that's kind of fascinating from a... Well, that'll probably do it. Now, is that why you stay out of the Caribbean? <laughs> <laughs> let's fast forward a little bit then. Okay. Let's uh, let's talk about a little bit later in life to try to catch us up to where we are now. You moved to Wilmington, North Carolina about 30 years ago. I got you married. got married. You become a college professor. Right. Um, I'm sure that you've had some ups and downs, some health scares along the way. Uh, would you say overall it was... Uh, pretty healthy 30 years would you say it, it truly was a merry-go-round like for for those listening you're now what in your 30s um you're in yeah. wilmington you've got this completely new life but you're still living with this deadly disease right, what, the, what the was clock, that like the clock is still ticking clock is ticking, clock is ticking. Um, compare i guess your health and your mindset sort of that next phase of your life to the first maybe phase the first 30 years i evolved to the point where i would make my own decisions i become my own advocate it was different because i now had a professional job you know i had worked plenty of food service jobs went to graduate yourself. school yeah, yeah. you know got a couple of master's degrees and i started teaching you know that's when we met yeah and you wouldn't know i was any different no other than the coughing that you would do the only way i can describe it ladies and gentlemen is if you are choking I don't mean like choking to death, but if you're choking on some water, every time you cough, you feel like you're choking even more, so you cough harder and louder. That's the way I would describe Bob's just normal coughing. And he would do that pretty much all day, every day. I could hear him down a the length of a 50-foot hall in his office with the door closed coughing. Um, he couldn't sneak up on anyone, that's for sure. Yeah, I'd go to the gym. I mean, I was throwing up some decent weight. So, I mean, everything went well. We were doing projects at school we did we were on television we yeah. did a bunch of programs on television and you know like i said you said except for the coughing you wouldn't know anything so no. here's my question for you i'm going to turn it around mm -hmm. for a minute over time you saw me begin to get worse what was that like to see the guy you used to pal around with and now all of a sudden you just start to yeah. get visible well I think it certainly made me think about my own mortality, which it certainly made it more profound for me to know that here's someone who was born with this really terrible hand who had, through perseverance, maybe a little bit of luck, certainly hard-headedness, and I guess some good medical intervention, had made it, had you know, gotten as far as you'd gotten, as far as I'd gotten. I mean, you had gone to grad school, I'd gone to grad school. We were meeting in the same place here in Wilmington, we're college professors around the same time. And I just remember thinking, man, all the stuff he's done to overcome, and yet he's not completely the bionic man. Like, he is mortal. 
And if he's mortal, if time or if the disease or both are catching him, I I'm I'm starting to get nervous because Ooh. I don't have any pre yeah. I don't have any major pre existing conditions that I know of. Uh, does this mean that you know <laughs> life's about to change for me? Um, so that that was one thing it did it was remind me of my own mortality. It made me start appreciating my own life a little bit more. I, I do remember thinking about that. Uh, slow down and take stock of my own life. Another thing it made me think was there's got to be something that he can do. I remember thinking every time I talked to you and you seemed to be a little bit worse, you were you were in the hospital a little bit more, you were getting more and more infections. It was just taking you longer to get better after a cold or something. I remember thinking, well, there's just got to be something else he hasn't done, he hasn't stumbled upon. He's a smart guy, he's stubborn. There's someone he hasn't talked to. And, and I think I remember asking you, like, what what else can you do? What else can you do? And you used to say, die, die. That's all I can do. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah, but you're not going to die. There's got to be something else. And I heard through the grapevine people saying, well, there is the lung transplant. He can always get lungs. And I remember asking you that. And you're like, I'm not going to get any more lungs. I'm not doing that. I didn't think you would ever do the lungs. And I really, to this day, don't know why you seem so resistant to it. Can you talk about that a little bit? If I had to guess, I think my main resistance was twofold. Number one. Because they had asked you about a lung transplant prior to when you actually received sure, one, right? Sure, sure, sure. How, how long would you say? I mean, they've been talking, like, in the 90s, I went and saw a presentation at Duke oh, about okay. it. You know, and they were talking about survivability rates. And okay, so this has been in, in your mind for, God, decades. Sure, sure. Okay, okay, I didn't realize that. Um, I thought this there. was just something that they started talking about when your oxygen levels got to a certain threshold. I didn't realize that they had been talking about a lung transplant well, they, even before that. They wanted to be something that you could plan in advance. Okay. You know, because there's a whole mindset you have to get into and the physical therapy you have to get into. I was probably in denial. A second thing is... It's kind of easier to help talk to you because you you know psychology. I think it's the devil you know. Right. You, you, know, you know the lungs you have. I know the lungs I have. I know what they're capable of. I know what we can do to fix them. I was ignoring the fact that we've done everything we can fix. Mm -hmm. But I didn't want to take that step. I was, I was afraid. Yeah, it's like... Um you know, you got this car you've had for a very long time. It's a junker. It's, and it's gotten worse and worse, right? It overheats. But you've always you know. managed to get it to crank. You've always managed to get it, you know, get it. duct tape on yeah, it. Yeah, it's going to get get you to where you're going. Even if it's not fun, even if it's stressing the hell out of you, it gets you where you want to go. And then someone's like, hey, you could get a new car. And you're like, huh? Well, then I got to what, What's the cost? Yeah, is it famous? And, and what if it's a lemon? And... When I get rid of this old car, once they've crushed it in the yeah. <laughs> in the junkyard, I can't get this back, right? If you get a double lung transplant, you have to rewrite everything. All the tricks you knew, all the IDs that you saw. May that, not work. Right. The, all the all the things that you understood and recognized and were able to say, Oh, I know what that means. We need to do X, you know. Yeah. All the no So again with your old lungs, it's the, the ones you've got, you're like there's, well, if I feel something, sense something, then I know exactly where to put the duct tape. Right. Yeah. It's like you have the, the instruction manual. Hell, you've written it. Yeah. You'd be throwing out the instruction manual, and then you got to learn all over again. And that's terrifying. Again, for our audience, 
you know, you would you would go routinely. I remember you'd go to routinely to Duke, yep. um, three months, six months, a year, whatever it was. And I remember the thing that you sort of communicated to me was this magic like oxygen number, right? Yep. I guess you would do these tests, and they would give you an indication of how what well your lungs were working. Yeah, I'm assuming there was a threshold that you were trying to stay above. The more it would stay above, obviously, the better off. So every but time I never really down. understood what that meant. Like, does that mean you die if it goes below a certain point? Do you yeah. have to get a lung transplant? Do you have to get on oxygen? Like, what what was it? All of those things. Oh. All of those things come as a consequence because if you can't keep the oxygen level high enough. What starts to happen is your organs start to die. Yeah. So carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, <coughs> I guess, is now able to build up and yeah, it builds up in mm -hmm. your body. Your kidneys start to suffer. Your liver starts to brain. suffer. Okay. Your brain starts to suffer. So all these organs are starting to die before you even get to the point where they want you to be below twenty percent, mm -hmm. but above sixteen percent. So that's a fine slice. You see, they save it for the people that need it the most, so that's why they want it to be below a certain number. But once you get too low, you would not survive the transplant. So you got to hit that sweet spot. Mm. And so when you do hit that sweet spot, the clock is really speeding up. Yes. And that's when I guess what? It's now got to use oxygen? Or and by that point, I was on oxygen all the time. Yeah, I remember you saying that you... Didn't want to be on oxygen either. You saw that as sort weakness. of weakness as well. It's like, I don't need oxygen. So I had to go on oxygen all the time. I, right. At home, I had an oxygen concentrator. So it's about the size of a mini fridge. And what it does is it takes the oxygen out of the air, concentrates it, and sends it right to you. And you would sleep with that, I guess? And oh, yeah. I was scuba diving in my own home with the same complications if you were to run out of air Underwater, while scuba yeah. diving. Yeah, you would die. I would drown in air. And then a portable one, I guess you would take with you. I think yeah, I, I would have a whole bunch of tanks that I would take with me. And at that, that point, the doctor I was seeing in, in uh, Duke, uh, she told me, and I remember this was in July of 2017, and she said, if you don't get a lung transplant within six months, you will be dead. I understood I need to get the transplant. Mm -hmm. So then what you have to do is you have to apply for the program. Now, there's a couple of requirements. So as close as you are to death, you got a doctor at Duke saying you need to do this right away. Yep. You mean to tell me they didn't just, like, schedule you for the transplant? They didn't already have the lungs waiting oh, on you? Oh, no, no. So, and that's where the, there's the thing that you're going to mention again at the end of the podcast. It's called the Scientific Registry of Transplant Recipients. Yeah, and for those of you who are interested in this, uh, this is a database that allows you to do all sorts of customizable searches to find... By state, mm -hmm. by uh, organization that offers the transplant, survivability rates, length of time on the wait list, uh, their success in the first couple of years. All that information is online and accessible to anybody. Yeah, and that'll be linked in the description below the, um, the title of this podcast. So, yeah, you can look it up by lungs, heart, kidney... Heart and lungs, you nice. can do all the kind of qualifiers that you need to, and it will give you an idea of the places you could go, you know, the, the treatment responses, right. success rates. And, and if you're really interested in it, um, you can look a lot of this stuff up. Also, and, and one of the reasons that we're doing this podcast is because when you said they didn't sign me up right away, because right. there's always 
way more people that need a transplant, but there aren't as many donated organs. Mm. So you can't give them out to everybody. There's a selection process. So now the donated organs, is this just as simple as I go to my DMV to get my license renewed and I say I want to be an organ donor? Yep. Or is this some kind of additional special thing I'd have to do? Because I'm an organ donor, for instance. Okay. I'm assuming that if I died right now, I'm a non-smoker, my lungs are probably in pretty good shape, provided that there was no damage to my lungs in the way I died, perhaps my lungs could go and save someone like you. Well, what's interesting is if you are an organ donor, they'll take your body, keep it artificially alive, and then they will contact multiple people from multiple organs. And then what they do is they wait until everybody's there. So if, say, the University of Kentucky needs two kidneys or if somebody else in University of Virginia needs a liver, take them all out at the same time. And what they can do, now I know this just because I have lungs, but let's say that you were in a car accident. What they mm-hmm. can do now, and this is what Duke does, is they basically put your lungs on their own separate life support. Wow. And by leaving it on there, it increases the likelihood that the lungs are going to survive, that they're going to be in good condition when they move in, and therefore the survivability of the recipient goes up. Wow. So the recipient's dead. The brain is dead. They're gone. But the lungs are on their own and they're still life alive. support system. Yeah, they're on their own life support system, and it can help repair trauma, um, bleeding, um, all that other stuff. But keep them in the best shape possible before transplantation. Yep. But uh, So they take all of them at the same time. Because it doesn't make sense. If you're an organ donor, why would they just take one thing out of you when no, they could just take Might as well all? use everything that's good. Right. Um, you know, your corneas, your kidneys. But it is strange to know that they could be going to a variety of hospitals across the nation. Yeah. And obviously helping a variety <laughs> of people. Yeah. So the lungs that you uh, received um, might be part of a body whose body parts. Might yeah, have gone heart, somewhere uh, else. Yeah. Pancreas okay. might have gone somewhere else. Okay. You know, talk then about this this list. Talk about what happened once uh, you made the decision. You and your doctor made the decision to go forward with this lung transplantation. Um, you said you had six months to make this, or in six months you'd be dead. She said. Yes. So so talk about what that was like getting uh, on the list or getting through all that bureaucracy, so to speak. Okay. So the first thing they wanted to do was check me out physically. For example, they made sure that I didn't have cancer because again it doesn't make sense to put fresh lungs in a body that's going to die of bone cancer in six months which is a little bit um <coughs> oxymoronic right you got a person who is six months away from dying if they don't get a lung transplant right but, but at the same time they're assessing your physical health right. your worthiness to receive new lungs that's well, almost a paradox isn't it well it's not just the worthiness for example they, i mean physical worthiness though they, they tested my heart mm-hmm. to see if my heart can handle the strain of the operation right. right which again that makes total sense to me from a logical perspective it does but i guess it's just it's almost counterintuitive this this notion that you could have been turned down because your heart wasn't strong enough or that you could be turned down because you weren't physically healthy enough to receive the lungs logically i get it but it's like right, right. well yeah if you weren't in pretty bad shape, right? You wouldn't even you qualify. Wouldn't, you yeah. wouldn't need them anyway. But like I said, I I totally agree with these yeah. things. Because if I'm going to stroke out in the middle of the, I mean, makes sense. It doesn't help okay. anybody. 
Then they got to try and what are they going to do with the lungs? They're going to rip them back out. They can try and put them in life support again. And I'm also assuming you couldn't you couldn't be currently fighting some kind of nasty infection at the same time. You had to be free from right. They checked to make sure I didn't have um, AIDS, okay, um, leukemia, you know, the whole nine yards because that would just decrease my survivability. Okay. Um, so you come back, all that stuff's negative. Yeah. You're in pretty good physical health. Right, right. And then I met with the surgeon. The first day I met him, he took one look at me. You're the type of patient I want. Oh, wow. You had never met the surgeon? Nope. That was my okay. first. Because this is a transplant surgeon, I yes. guess. The, the main right. guy I do. His, his first 60 seconds, he said that. Um, now, just to, to give you an indication, I was still going to the gym. I was going to say, were you doing push-ups in the office or something? What were you doing? No, I mean, I was still bench pressing 225 pounds mm-hmm. in the gym. So what I would do is I'd put the, I'd put the weights on, Yeah. and then I'd do a couple of reps, and then I had to sit there <laughs> with the oxygen with the oxygen until I evened out, and then i put five more pounds on, and then it was like... <laughs> but he could tell from my body posture, my animation... That, that he knew that I was going to make the most out of it. I knew if I had survived the operation, I was going to come back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I mean, come back all the way. Right. right. And as long as they did their part, as long as the lungs did its I would part, get my part done. You get your part done. So you, you've got this physical test that you, hurdle you've passed to right. be eligible. Um, I'm assuming your blood type checked out. Yep. Uh, what's next? Um, what's the next big hurdle? One of the things they want to be sure of is your mental capacity. Not whether you can add two plus two, but your, I guess, emotional capacity. Oh, they're not doing an IQ test or... No, they're doing like an emotional stability test. Do you have what's in you to follow the rules and do what to you're fight supposed and to, to do? do yeah, to, to, <clears throat> to follow the rules that's been laid out for you. Oh, okay. What are some of those rules? Um... Well, that, that whatever medicines they prescribe, they mm-hmm. want you to do whatever regimens they want you to do, what things they want you to stay away from. Um, I'm assuming no smoking still, which shouldn't be a problem for you. Yeah. No yeah. drugs, uh, recreational drugs. That's in, that's an interesting thing. You mentioned the no smoking because while I was waiting on the list, mm-hmm. um, there are people who are getting kicked out. To show you how addicting nicotine is, these people are waiting for lung transplants, but they can't stop smoking. And they're getting kicked off because. Yeah, and then they're, you're done. You'll get wow. blacklisted from any transplant list. Wow. Well, it was an interesting phenomenon because they do blood work every day. Mm-hmm. And nicotine goes right into the bloodstream. Yeah. So we would watch these guys. My brother and I would watch these guys. They would sneak outside. And hide behind the dumpster and have a cigarette. and smoke, but it's still in your blood, right? So tomorrow morning when you get up and they take your blood, they're gonna know. Bye bye. And you, what you'd see is you go by there later in the day and that room is empty. So they're all they're all trying to get the same lungs you are potentially. Mm-hmm. Are, you, are you are you rooting against them? Or are you like are you saying hey you want to go have a smoke? I'll I'll be out there in a minute. <laughs> well, I, I look at it this way: if you're gonna eliminate yourself from the running, so be it. I mean, I'm all about doing what you want to do, yeah. but if it happens to benefit me, I mean, that may sound cold and hard, but mm-hmm. they're not willing to do what it takes to get it. Right. You know, because these are a gift. Yeah. You know, it's not like there's one for everybody. If there's enough for everybody, sure, do whatever. No big deal. But 
it's a fierce competition. Yeah. And if you're going to deliberately throw your chance out the window, yeah. I mean, like I said, I know it sounds cold and harsh, but... Yeah, but... Well, yeah, yeah getting back to this emotional maturity, readiness uh, that you're referring to... Um, you know, when you were first talking to me about this, you said they were interviewing you, and I guess there were counselors and whatnot talking to you, trying to assess um, whether or not you were uh, going to be a good fit mentally or emotionally to yeah. receive this gift. I remember thinking, who do they think they are, right? It's not their gift. I mean, they're just doing their job. They're getting paid to do this. But, you know, as we've sat here today, I have to, I have to admit, I, I think about the family of the person who, you know, gave this gift right Good point. yeah Good it's, point. it's it's the certainly the surgeons made this possible the team at duke made it possible but without i guess the the person whose um lungs you received um, none of this would have been possible i don't know how you feel about it and like you said this is a gift and if you're just going to spurn the gift or you're not going to do what's necessary i mean you can try and fail you can try space and fail. Mm -hmm. That's fine. But to not try at all, yeah. well, then you're wasting the gift, mm -hmm. you know? And there's always complications. There's always going to sure. be problems. There's always going to be things that go wrong. And that's not your fault. And, you know, yeah. it happens. Well, so they wanted to assess your attitude, right. in essence. Like, you know, how, how hard are you going to fight uh, to make all of this work, do your part? Did you have to send letters of recommendation from therapists or from other doctors you've had or from friends, family who know you best? No. Who know what kind of a fighter you are? No. Okay. They did talk to Camry, who was my girlfriend at okay. the time. And they did talk to my brother. Um, but mostly they're interviewing you. They're, they're yeah. trying to find out where you are. If I'm, to be honest, I wasn't 100% sure if I wanted a transplant. I was still scared. I was still reluctant. But I was still trying to play all my cards. It's like, well... Yeah. I'm not going to close that door. Exactly. I haven't really committed 100%. Okay. Mm -hmm. It came so fast. And maybe it didn't come as fast, but I just I wasn't willing to recognize it. Well, it's not abstract anymore. It's yep. go time. Yep, yep. Right. And so now every you, you got to be careful about everything you say. And what happened is I think they understood that I wasn't ready because they denied me the first time around. Really? They said that you cannot have it. And it was like a kick in the garage because, you know. And their reasoning? You weren't? I wasn't mentally ready. Mm -hmm. I wasn't mentally ready. Specifically, um, what do you think they were concerned about? That you wouldn't take it seriously? No, that, that I wouldn't follow the doctor's advice. Because okay. in the past, I had always, yeah, and I had done that fusion. Yeah, yeah. You give me some ideas, I decide which ones I'm going to keep and which ones I'm going to throw away. And they said that wasn't good enough. Okay. And, of course, now I'm like, because now it's October. And I have to get this done by January. Or I'm a dead man. Yeah. So the pressure is on. So what I had to do is I had to go back and ask my original doctor if she would. And she told me that she'd go out of my way, but I had to do everything they said for the first year. But what the hospital wanted was for you to have between thirty dollars and $40,000 in the bank cash. Which, again, sounds a little counterintuitive, sounds a little strange, almost sounds a little uh, elitist. Well, they want you to be able to afford an apartment okay? because you have to go. I mean, once you get discharged from the hospital, you're not done. 
No, it just starts. It starts. So you're not going back to work. Right. You know, you're not going to go grocery shopping on your own. They drive. estimated that you would be out for a year. Okay. For a year. I went back in six months. Um, I was ready to go back to work. In fact, they told me I could take off another semester. I'm like, nah, I'd rather get back to work. But that's me pushing myself. And again, insurance did cover most of this, but they wanted me to have that chunk of money up front. The other thing which I thought was really unusual, it was a buy one, get one free. So they said, do you need any other organs? And I'm like, not that I'm aware of. And the finance guy was like, no, because it's all covered. Yeah. So if you need two lungs and a kidney, two lungs and a liver, that's all in the same price. I assume that was just his sense of humor. No, that's legitimate. That was real. And I was like, well, because you're on the same rejection meds. It's like, oh, what else do you need? Could I take a couple of corneas and a pancreas? Yeah, Yeah. or a couple of kidneys. You know, I've got that one that's got problems with kidney stones. So I just thought it was weird that it was buy one, get one. Like, talk or about buy one, it. get as many as you want. Yeah, talk about talk about a BOGO, the ultimate BOGO sale. Yeah, yeah. You know? I'm used to going to the grocery store, buy one, get one free on a pack of you know soda or something. Yeah, but, yeah, like buy two six-pack of soda yeah, and yeah. pay the price for one. Yeah. But um, no, that, that was unusual, I thought. I go through the program, and I move up to do. I got, you got the green light. Into the, no, no, no. I got accepted into the program. I oh. still not am put on the list yet. Oh. So I have to start going through... Um, physical therapy. Also, I have to undergo uh, education and training. Like, these are the kind of foods you could eat. This is the kind of strict maintenance you're going to have to do to prepare your food. And, you know, this is the kind of water you can drink. This is the type of uh, way you have to prepare your food. This is like everything, especially for the first year, is, is extremely regimented. Because so you need to be close to Duke. Yep. To, to make these appointments every day. Oh, yeah, every day. Like, the physical therapy was every day. Right. Um, and the tests, and the, you know, frequent tests and all this other stuff. So they wanted you to have a place to stay, be able to afford food, whatever. And I did get reimbursed mm-hmm. afterwards, but they want you to have that money up, up front, front to pay for the stuff, not that you've made it this far, but you can't afford to stay there. Now, you know, I live three hours away right. in Wilmington. So, you know, that's... That's not a commute, you know. So, um, so you. That's what you guys are helping yeah, so, me with. So the, with his the, friends, uh, including my co-host Nelson Bowyer, basically start these fundraising drives. We do some GoFundMe or crowdsourcing. I think Nelson at one point is even selling concessions at high school basketball games uh, to raise money for Bob here. And uh, I guess we raise what. Maybe thirty thousand, something yeah, like that. It was, it was Pretty quickly. Money. I think we do it in about a month or so. And you move up to Durham. No, I, I want to say one thing about the fundraising. First of all, thank you to everybody that donated. My students donated, even if it was only five bucks or ten bucks, because I was still teaching class up to the last minute. Yeah. Um, and the fact that they donated. The other really weird thing is people when they were fundraising and they would talk. If you've ever had that fantasy where you wondered what people would say about you while you're you know, at your funeral, yeah, that's what it was like because yeah, you could read the comments people were leaving, yeah, on the GoFundMe site, yeah, they yeah. would like, you know, Mr. Brennan changed my life, you know, he helped me with this, he helped me do this, and you know, and you never, it was like a wonderful life, yeah, that's got to be a little extra motivating. Well, it was, it was very touching because you don't. You don't realize. Talk about 
the good life. You don't realize the impact that you have on other people's lives, even by doing small things. So that was a really nice unintended consequence of all this. Mm -hmm. You find out what people thought of you while you're still alive to appreciate it. It was interesting to see that impact of the life you have. And it was, like I said, it was unattended and unexpected, and but it, it really, it really touched me. And the reason why I think this had such a dramatic effect is because the one up to then downside to the fundraising is I had always kind of kept my disease. You, know, you and mm. I knew each other for a while before I even told you. Right. You know, and I was a very personal about my disease. I didn't want to share it with people mm -hmm. because it's my business. You right. know, but I needed to reach out to people to yeah, help me. You had to be a lot more vulnerable. Right. Perhaps and, with complete strangers. Yeah. So it was hard for me to do that. But the upside was all those stories, yeah. you know, that I heard from people. So it was, it helped. And obviously I'm way more likely to talk about it now. Than mm -hmm. I mean, I'm right here. Um, but like I said, one of the reasons I'm here is to talk about organ donation and, and the impact. Because think about it. To the people who are listening, you wouldn't hear my voice right now. This podcast wouldn't exist right now right. if I hadn't gotten this. Yeah. So this is kind of my way of, of giving back. Right. Is to let people know that there are, there are multiple organizations out there that can help you donate. Mm -hmm. um, they're all online. We'll list a bunch of them at the end of the podcast right. that you can use or research. And um, it literally changes lives. It yeah. saves lives. Well, and I mean, you're a living testament to how attitude is a big part of that and community is a big part of that. Again, you, I think I've heard you say before, you were, you know, at, at one point ready to just go ahead and die, but but something switched, something changed um, when you moved in with your uncle. And and likewise, you don't seem to me to be the kind of guy that's going to ask for, let alone beg for anything. So if the crowdsourcing, if the charitable outreach were up to you, I doubt you would raise $30,000. Um, but you had a community around you. You had people willing and ready to step in, like Nelson in particular, who were like, all right, we're going to get this guy the $30,000 he needs, and I'm going to do it in record time. Um, it, it, yeah, he was relentless about it. We were reaching out to old friends, old colleagues, students, anyone who would listen. Yeah. Um, Nelson was, was sharing the story far and wide. <laughs> other side talking with bob brennan instructor friend colleague mentor mentor bob's been sharing his story of lung transplantation he didn't actually do the surgery he received them uh, a little over five years now right bob five and a half five and a half years and i uh, wanted to ask him in this last part of this episode what life's been like since he received the lung. So I guess we'd start with you wake up, what, 2019, 18? 18. 18. Uh, remind everyone when you went in, how long the surgery went, and when you woke up. Okay, so um, I had finished the program. I had done all the education and training and everything, and I was still getting worse. Yeah. I was still, I mean, there were days... 
Yeah, because we still had to keep doing physical therapy. Yeah. And it's it's painful to describe, but I was suffocating so bad that after one particular exercise session, I was laying on the mat and I couldn't get up. Mm. There's like stuff coming out of my lungs and I was suffocating. I was on oxygen and I was drowning on the floor. Everything you have is ripped away from you. I mean, your independence, your power, you're spewing all kinds of vile things onto the floor. I didn't feel as bad in front of the other patients, you know, around the healthy people. You know, it's like, I'm thinking this is disgusting, you know, pathetic and weak and just so disempowering. You know, we were still going to see the surgeon and finally saw the surgeon on a Wednesday. He said, why are you on the list yet? You know, I was a little cranky and I said, good question, doc. Yeah. And he said, I'll take care of it. How long you had you been doing this sort of? Six weeks. So you've been six weeks so we're talking, preparing. We're in the last week of December. And remember, that deadline is flashing. It's flashing. Yeah. It's not. That was a pretty literal deadline. And it's funny because when I, 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 when I finally got they said I wouldn't have lasted two more weeks. So her prognostication was right. Right on the money. The, the doctor that said you got six, six months. Yep. It was right on the money. So here you are, end of December 2017. Right. The very next day, it was a Thursday, I got notified. He called me up and said, you're on the list. Now, of course, you got to wait for a, an organ. Right. It's, that matches. They said the average wait was two weeks. and yeah, I'm, That's actually a lot faster than I thought. I'm a pessimist. And I'm like, uh, that sounds a little overly optimistic. So we decided that there was a bunch of food I could no longer eat once I got it. So... My brother and I decided, well, each night we'll go out to a different restaurant and I'll eat that one last time, you know, mm -hmm. like sushi. So after the surgery, I can't have these things, so let's go uh -huh. have them now. The one night we went and had some bunch of seafood, and then the next night it was like super cold, like super cold, so we stayed in. They put me on the list Thursday afternoon. Saturday, I'm sitting there in my room, and picture this, we have this apartment in Durham, and we have the wire, the tubing from the oxygen concentrator, attached to the wall, you know, and I'm sitting in my room and I get a phone call and they're like, all right, you're up. I'm like, what? Huh? What? Who? What? I've only gone to one restaurant, man. I know. It's like, I'm like, what? 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 Because I was no way ready because I'm thinking two weeks. This is 48 hours, two days. And I'm going, what the hell? What? 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 And my brother's like, calm down. Calm down. We're like, we want you in here by 7 p.m. So I decided to cut Same all. day. Yeah, you're on. Okay. So whatever happened has already happened. Yeah. And I was like, my brother's like, calm down, calm down. You got a couple hours yet. Most people can't leave the house without taking a shower, combing their hair. Right. For like, you know, to go to the grocery store. <laughs> well, I knew I was going to be bedridden. That's not a thing to do with long hair. So my brother got out the clippers and we just shaved my head bald. We got in the car, we drove over there and um, we got valet parking. Evidently, you spend 1.2 mil, you get that $9 valet parking for free. Don't even have to tip. So, yeah. So, we get in there, and I get all prepped and everything, and I got the IV in my arm, and, you know, I got the gown on, and I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. And they mentioned that there might be a possibility in our training that there's a false alarm, like, you know, something happens, complication, whatever, whatever, whatever. It ends up being a dry run. So, we're getting close to midnight. 
This is on December. Th- now, when you say dry run, you don't mean they've been testing you and the team. It wasn't no, like no, a, no. It's not dry like a run, as in they thought they were going to have an organ coming but in, but just they're not. Is, okay, it's Something not like a happened. it's not like a fire alarm where they're just testing. No, 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 the no. It was okay. It, it was like maybe the organ didn't make it. Maybe gotcha. you know the person you know was more horribly damaged than they, than thought. they thought originally. Yeah. So there are you know false alarms or whatever, and then. I, we have just finished saying, my brother and I are there, we are just finished saying, they're like, okay, um, well, this, our, our dry run, you know, next time I'll be in a better mood. And the nurse comes bustling in. She's like, all right, here, drink this. I'm like, what is that? She's like, that's a sterilizing agent to kill any bacteria you might have in your esophagus or throat or teeth or whatever. Wow. Just kill everything. It's just like nuke everything in your body lungs are there yeah because they're in downstairs and they they want me to show up a man barely alive gentlemen we can rebuild him we have the technology we have the capability to make the world's first bionic man um and we're like uh oh yeah, uh oh and there's nothing you can say so I told my brother, I'll see you on the other side. One way or the other. Yeah, one way or the other. Well, he'd be seeing you on the other side. Uh, yeah. the other. So they sent me off, and I was out. It, now, obviously, a lot of things are going through your head at that time. Was there a, even a moment where you thought, I'm not going to see him again? I'm not going to see anybody again? This is it? I was about 85% sure I was going to make it. They're still, uh, obviously, you never know. They could nick an artery or, or something bad happens yeah. and you die. It doesn't get any more major surgery than this. Yeah. They're cutting chunks but, out But, I mean, of your you body. are at Duke. I mean, say right, what you right, want about right. Duke. And a lot of people, there's people have love hate relationship with Duke, especially when it comes to sports, right? Yeah. Um, but when it comes to Duke Medical, especially their transplantation, they're but, considered some of the still, best in the world. You know, it's like, wow, look at that. They made a thousand perfect transplants. But then my case, somebody dropped a knife. Yeah. You know, from my perspective, something could go wrong. You know, I'm not saying anything bad about Duke. I'm just saying, you know, as far as the likelihood that something might go wrong, it's, there's always a chance. I, I never asked you this, but did they temper your expectation or would, did they all seem pretty confident? Like when you talked with the surgeon who, who said, I'm going to get you on the list immediately, was he pretty Pretty confident. He said, you're not going to die. Oh, wow. That's got to be a, a good thing to hear. Well, yeah. But then again, I don't know. What would he say, right? Yeah, like, well, I got a 50-50 chance, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe, I don't know if that was a true thing, whether that was a pep talk or whatever. You so know. You're, you're getting prepped for surgery, and you're expecting the surgery to take uh, how long? How long? 14 hours. 14 hours. 12 to 14 hours. Multiple people in the, the operating room, I'm assuming. They got a team of people, yeah. Uh, I do, I do remember. So because my lungs were in such bad shape, but I was still exercising. Right. The, the doctor said, the surgeon said to me, he said, is it okay if we do, um, take the lungs and, and experiment on them when you're done with them? Oh, okay. You know, the old ones. And I was like, I'll make you a deal because ever since I was a kid, you wanted to know what they look like. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask you that as well, but I didn't know if that'd be too vulgar. I actually have it on my phone. You got the photo? Yeah. Okay. Um, and I said, I'll tell you what, you can have them, but I, I, want, you, I want you to take a picture of them and send it to me. Yeah, I got to see it. So it turns out in the middle of the surgery. Stops to take a photo. Yeah. He takes his phone. Or someone does. He, he takes does his cell the phone out because he gave me his number. Yeah. So he took the pictures. He, he, he emailed me or, or whatever, texted them to me. And all right, fair enough. 
But um, so I'm out. And my brother, when you talk to my brother, he'll tell you um, that uh, he was expecting a long way. So he went back to the apartment and he sterilized it as best he could. Right. Because when I finally got out of the hospital, you know, I need to be in this. That's boring the bubble time. You, right, you got to right. live in as clean and sterile environment as possible. Because they jacked up all kinds of uh, immune suppressant drugs. Because if your body were to find these two things and going, uh, these don't belong here. Evidently, he got a phone call within like four hours. He's like, the doctor's like, yep, got the first one done already. He's like, what? What? And yeah, you, you went in on the 31st, right? And, of 2017. Like was, you went in last hour of 2017 yeah. and you woke up and it was a new year. Yeah, it was a new year. 2018, January 1st. But it was interesting because, but what the doctor said was because I kept exercising up to the last minute. A lot of people, when their lungs get that bad, they don't get out of bed, they don't exercise. Well, no, they're not going down and laying on that yoga mat and, and, and vomiting out their bodily fluids like you were. And what happens is your lungs get stuck to the chest lining. Really? And it makes it difficult to extract them because you have to pull them out so there's room for attachments for the new ones. But because I kept going to Doors the last right away. Minute, yep. Yeah. And they I said they were just like taking out a pair of slippers. Yeah. Versus taking some like 20-year-old wallpaper off the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Dang. So he was, I don't remember because my brain was suffering brain damage from the time, uh, from the buildup of carbon dioxide. Um, at one point up to the, to the actual transplant, um, they actually had me hooked to a machine that would force air, oxygen-rich air, into my lungs, like overfill my lungs so that they would like, and it would force the carbon dioxide out. Now, it wasn't a perfect solution, and they were losing ground. But you but couldn't it, do it on your own. Right. It bought me time. Even after the, so they cut me open, like I got 144 staples, armpit to armpit, broke my sternum, and then they lifted up the rib cage. They took out the two lungs, put the new ones in, stitched them up as best they could. As they were wheeling me out of surgery, my brother saw me. He said I looked a thousand percent better. Really? Already? Yes. Because I was getting rid of the carbon dioxide. Clearly there was some more color in your body. Yeah. He said, except for the fact that I was covered in, in bandages and tubes, he said, I look like normal. Interesting. That gives you an idea. So there is a funny part to the story. So, no, they, so they're already working, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So they put me in ICU, you know, and they're waiting for me to recover. And my brother tells the story. So they kept checking on me because they have to switch over the different types of uh, um, painkillers and everything. So they're trying to get me to wake up. Right. So they we keep coming by and like the nurse would be like, Mr. Brennan, Mr. Bob Brennan, you know, and I'm not responding. So my brother's picture this. He's sitting there in the room with me. He's reading a paperback book, right? And one of the nurses comes in and she's like, Mr. Brennan. And my brother goes, why don't you try high handsome? <laughs> right? So the girl leads over and she goes, high handsome. And I go, what, what, what's going on? <laughs> so that's what woke me up. Not my own name, but because the girl said I handsome. And now I'm like, oh, I'm awake now. <laughs> so you survived the surgery. I did. The surgery's not record time, but damn, that's pretty fast. You, I guess, wake up shortly after surgery? I guess. Yeah. Again, uh, that's a question you're going to have to ask my brother. Ask your brother, yeah. I don't, 
Obviously, I was unconscious. But reasonably, I mean, you you were yeah. you were back. It was the next day. I, okay, how long before you could physically get out of the bed and walk? Oh, they make you get up that day. Wow. Now you told me a story before we went on air about what their expectation was, and again, this is just sort of reinforced the kind of attitude we're dealing with here, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, remind me again, they said they wanted you to walk a mile or something like that. Before they, before before they, they could were... release me, I'd have to be able to walk a mile. So they got you up the first day, even if it's just to yeah. the door and back, st- because they want you to start moving and yeah. using the lungs. I made up my mind I was going to be able to do two miles. Wow. So we started walking, and I had this big, almost looks like the rack that they carry meat out on, on um Food line. Like a rolling. Yeah, it's a rolling thing. It's got they, your IV they, in it, I assume. And they got my IV in it. They, and I had seven tubes to drain the fluid. So right. I got seven tubes. I've got walking. I'm pushing it down the hallway. And I'm in socks. And I don't have any traction because my muscles are have, have atrophy. Right. So I'm having a hard time walking. And each day I'd walk another, turn oh. around the, the desks. And, and within... I'd say within 10 days, I was walking two miles. Wow. And they were like, what? What? I was actually discharged pretty fast. I was out of there in 21 days. Wow. Uh, one do you other, know what a normal discharge would, would look like? There's so many factors. Yeah, so many that, variables. Um, one of the guys I do know that was in my exercise cohort, he had been in the, there for 16 months. Everybody has their own journey. Everybody has, depending on the complications, you know. Right. You don't know what. And what's interesting is my age group, so I was 53 at the time. My age group was, because I looked on the statistics, that's the biggest age group, the early 50s. That receives lungs. Yeah. Uh, There are a bunch of older people. Mm Mm-hmm. And in fact, and in, not all from cystic fibrosis, obviously. No, yeah, there's COPD, there's emphysema, right. there's um, what do you call it, mesothelioma, there's pulmonary fibrosis. Yes, yeah. there's a whole bunch, and smokers, of course, in yeah. there. Um, but um, yeah, so they're all for different things. There are people that, yeah, there were times I was the youngest guy in the room at 53, right? You know, there were one or there were a handful of people that were younger than me, maybe. Three women that I knew that were younger than me. Two were in their 20s. Right. And one was like in her low 40s. For the most part, they were all older than I was. The other thing I think that was my advantage is I had been working out for most of my adult life. So I didn't have to learn how to pick up a dumbbell. I didn't have to learn how to, after the first week, I would <laughs> I would start sneaking away and I'd grab this and I'd do this exercise or I'd grab that and I'd do that exercise and then like, we didn't tell you to do that. I was like, I mean, obviously, I checked. I didn't, you know, like, I had to stay away from anything involving chest because they had sewed me back together. I actually have the plate now in my chest where they stitched my two halves of my sternum together. There's wire. If when I take an x-ray, I can see the, the wire that's tied my body together. Really? Yeah. Um, but I started working out, and I just, and I would just, by the second day that I was out of the, out of the hospital, the second day I was going to the uh, physical rehab place, I was doing it without a walker. I was walking on my own power. Wow. And then I would just keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. So, and, you know, 
I, but what happened is typically my brother would come drop me off, then he'd pick me up, and then I'd go home and take a nap because mm. I was worn out, worn out. So how long did it take post-surgery for you to get back to normal or back to a new normal, would you say? Where you're back to work, you're living back in Wilmington, and you're kind of doing things as well uh, or if not better than you were. They took me off oxygen after the first day. And it was funny because I remember I went to blow my nose. Now, before surgery, I had very little oxygen power, very little. So it would require basically an act of Congress. I had to like put every ounce of energy I had. I have the new lungs and I went to blow my nose and the tissue shot across the room. Really? Because there was so much power behind it. It blew out of my hand. <laughs> it blew out of my hand and then fell off the other side of the bed. I'm going to have to learn to recalibrate that. Yeah. Uh, what else was interesting? Oh, I didn't have a voice. What mm. happens is the equipment they shove down your throat to keep you breathing and all this other stuff, it, it paralyzes you or damages your vocal cords. Oh. And it, it's funny because they, they had this complicated program on how to, gain your speech power back and how to right. learn to reemphasize words. And I developed my own little system. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and um, again, I come from New Jersey and we always believe that if, if you're going to use swear words, you have to really put your heart and soul into it because mm -hmm. otherwise it doesn't really count. Right. So I've always learned to put a lot of effort into swear words. So that's how I learned how to speak again. You just use your swear words. Emphatically. Mm -hmm. Like, Hercules and Vatel, you know, and Gingerbread And my brother would be like, what's wrong? What's wrong? Just like, practice. I'm talking. I'm learning to talk. <laughs> um, well, I obviously. It worked. I've been here for the last two hours, so you know yeah. it worked. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was just like a little fun fact. So other than the uh, shooting the tissue across the room from right. the force of... Uh, Lung power. Yeah. What other things did you notice that were different, that were surprising, that were um, odd? And this is, this is you know, one of the questions I got asked mm -hmm. by everybody, and, and, you know, it's not surprising. They were like, how does it feel? Yeah, I wanted to know that. Does it feel different? And No. In the sense that, and the best analogy I can make for this mm -hmm. is if you're walking mm -hmm. and your ankle doesn't hurt, right? do you think about your ankle? No. No. You only, That's what's you only notice it when it's, when it's something wrong. Right. Or you twisted it or there's a, right. you know, a bruise or you're limping. You know, If the organ or whatever part of your body is working the way it's supposed to, you do not... Think about yeah, it. Yeah, so it's not like you wake up and you go, whose lungs are these? You don't notice. Well, I look at it the whole, you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Um, and again, that's not to disparage the person, but you just don't think of it as not being yours. Which I guess is a testament to how good of a fit it was, perhaps, potentially. I think it's more of a psychological thing, mm -hmm. you know, your brain can adapt to anything. And was it Milton says the mind can make a mm -hmm. heaven out of hell and a hell out of heaven. That's right. That your powers impact the way. 
So I don't think of them as not being mine. Right. They're mine. I use them. They're mine. Mm -hmm. I forget, unless we're doing something like this. Yeah. I forget that they weren't original issue. Right. You know, that they're mine. I don't think about it mm -hmm. unless I'm given the cause to. One of the other questions that people ask me is, do you know? Right. And I don't. Yeah. Do you know whose lungs they are? I do Do you not. know? The, 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 the circumstances surrounding nope. this person? Because it could be a male or female, right? I have a very big chest cavity. Okay. So statistically speaking... Likely to be a male. It's likely to be an adult male. Okay. Uh, obviously, I mean, I have a big chest, right. especially on the inside. But that's because my whole life I've... Exercised. I've, but I've had to work the chest muscles... Particularly to get hard, yeah. them to work. Mm -hmm. So I have a big chest cavity. Yeah. So very, now there are some women who have bigger chest cavities, right. but you know, the way human physiology goes, yeah. most likely it's a man. Okay. And in fact, there are a couple spots where the one I got, the set I got were a teensy bit too small. Okay. Enough to work with. Yeah, yeah. But I had gaps to wow. start with. And you could physically feel those gaps. I couldn't feel them, but they were loose and they would move because oh, okay. they didn't attach the way they're supposed to at first. Right. Now, eventually, they grew to fit the space. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so, yes, most likely it's a male, and 99.9% .9 chance it's it's an adult. Now, you just never wanted to know, or is that something that you're, you're not allowed to know? How does that work? Okay, so the way Duke does it, there's a double blind. Mm -hmm. So for me to find out, right. what I would have to do is I would have to write a letter okay. scrubbing all my personal information. Okay. I am X. I received X on this Day. date. Yeah. Um, and what they would do is Duke again would scrub it, make sure all identifying information was removed. And then what would have to happen is the family would have to agree, would have to have written a letter saying, we would like to. We would like to know what happened to my son, uh, husband. Oh, whatever. so this is they don't they don't play it like a solicitation. Your letter can't act as a solicitation no. to the family. The family they both had, have had to, to do it at the also same time. ask. And if both parties are amenable in their letters, then they make decisions. So is it theoretically possible the family's already written? It's possible. Interesting. I. I can see both sides. Mm -hmm. And this is one that I've wrestled with for a while. I mean, on one side, the way I see it is, say it was my brother that died. Mm -hmm. I would like to know that the person that got his lungs is... Doing well. Doing well, you know, as a teacher that's yeah. impacting back, people's yeah. lives, that we've extended, you know, somebody's life. They have a family, you know, maybe this guy had kids, mm -hmm. you know, and they get to see their dad, you know, the whole nine yards. Yeah. And and I think, I think, because I can only surmise that that would be comforting. Right. You know, I'm sure if something were to happen to you that your wife would, I mean, obviously she's going to be miserable. Yeah, but. That if she knew that your lungs went to help. Someone else. Another dad. Yeah. You know. And spend time with his kids. I think it would take some of the sting out. Now, obviously, not 
all of it, not a huge amount, right. but I think it would take a little bit of the sting. Well, particularly knowing now that you've made it five, and, five, half years. five and a half years, which your survival ability at the five-year mark was what, 50-50 or? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So flip a coin as to whether or not you're going to make it five years. I mean, so yeah, I, but the other part is that's a hard conversation to have. Sure. You know, what do you, what do you say to the wife? What do you say to the kid mm-hmm. that lost their dad or brother or husband or what, you know, that. Yeah. What, what do you say thanks? to them? You know, I yeah. mean, how do you adequately express your gratitude for their ultimate sacrifice? And it's, and again, you know, you can think about it and learning and learning about their kid. Would that that change your relationship with your lungs? I don't. You know? I don't know. You and know I, I wonder about that. What What if this kid, you know, was drinking and driving and lost his life? Would have you thought about the the circumstances surrounding him losing his life? Would that matter to you? Well, because one of the things that we're worried about is survivor's guilt. Oh yeah, they're worried about that because here you have an organ that somebody had to die to give up. You know, it's not like a kidney where you can still live or right. donate, um, you know. Yeah, you know for a fact the person is not alive. That, right. Who's, who's I got, lungs you have, yeah. Because I got two. Yep. I got two. Um, and, yeah, from a philosophical point of view, I didn't kill him. No. I didn't walk into the fish tank in the restaurant and say, that guy looks healthy. Right. You know, and take him out. Um, so his death had nothing to do with me. But um, it does link you. But he was already gone yeah. before I got right. them. So it's not... So from my perspective, I did nothing to kill him. Right. He was going to die anyway. Uh, and again, I know that sounds harsh, but um, I'm making the best I can with oh, what I got. Yeah, yeah. So, and you know, just doing this podcast is yeah. a positive thing, the way yeah, I yeah. look at it. Yeah, um, people are going to hear this, um, I'm assuming... And hopefully find some kind of inspiration or some kind of reinforcement, maybe to disabuse them of certain notions they have about um, how the process is going to be right. potentially for them, or um, you know how what's the likelihood of being able to bounce back from something like this. And I'm sure there's families out there whose loved ones are on a transplant list right now, and they're wondering. Right. You know, is my kid is really, is it going to happen, first of all? But when it does, is my kid going to be strong enough to, to make it through? Um, you know, before um, you came over to do this podcast today, I had gone to the Internet and just searched first lung transplant. Have you ever done this? No. Um, I was surprised by some of the stuff I learned. First and foremost, I was surprised to learn that the first Human lung transplant was performed by a surgeon named James Hardy at the University of Mississippi. First successful long-term single lung transplant was uh, on a man named Tom Hall, performed by surgeon Joel Cooper in Toronto in 1983. Oh, wow. 1983. Now, the next two or three successful ones were performed by the same guy, Joel Cooper, in Toronto. Turns out, he did one on a cystic fibrosis patient in hmm. 1988. So the first successful lung transplant of a person with cystic fibrosis, I think, was 1988. I just think about the the 
time you're living in, you know? Had you accepted um, to be part of a lung transplant earlier on in your life, it might have not been as successful as it is now. I mean, obviously they've oh yeah they've gotten much better at this, and they know a whole lot more. Um, well, I would assume with each operation you learn something else. Like, oh well, potassium levels have a tendency to go up, so we need to watch that. Or you know, you have to be careful uh, because, for example, some of the drugs I'm on, right. um, I can't eat grapefruit juice. Right. It tends to Interfere. Impact. Mm -hmm. Now, what they didn't know at first was that the cheapest form of citric acid is grapefruit. Is grapefruit. So they were giving people. So when you drink fruit drinks, or mm -hmm. if you drink mellow yellow, or if you drink sundrop, the citric in it comes from grapefruits. Because so I think cheapest. it makes some of the medications less effective. I know yeah. that. Yeah. So I can't have mellow yellow. I can't have. Interesting. Uh, um. Uh, sun drop. I can't have those drinks anymore because so I wonder, you know, how many things they discover as they go along. You know, I mean, would you think about that? No, you, you wouldn't have. You wouldn't no. until you find out, oh, it failed. Well, his favorite drink was sun drop. So, uh, oh, darn, look. Yeah. You know, they've had um, they've been actually drinking their own demise. Well, speaking of favorites, uh to get back to this list of people who'd received lung transplants and how long they've lived. Um, I know one of your favorite places on the earth is Ireland. Yep. And I uh, was reading that a woman named Vera Dyer or Dwyer in 1988 received a lung transplant. Um, she was Irish County Sligo. Okay. That's where she's from. She received this for chronic and fibrotic lung disease. I'm assuming that may have been cystic fibrosis. This was in 1988. Uh, she received a single lung transplant in the UK at that time and was still living in 2018. She was recognized in 2018 as the world's longest surviving single lung transplant recipient. Uh, it was done at Matter Hospital in Dublin, it looks like. That's kind of interesting. I wonder if she's still around. Might have to reach out to her and see if she's still with us. Again, that's what, 30, 40 years she'd lived with it, 30 years? So Wilmington's record-breaking lung transplant patient died at 60. Yep. The longest surviving lung transplant recipient. Inspirational story showcased advances in transplant surgery died in hospice care. That was November 9th, uh, what, a few years ago? No, last year. Oh, last year, 2022. Um, doesn't he, say, he now, it doesn't his. say here. He, he, it was cystic fibrosis as well. Did it so, say when he got his? I think um, it was in the 80s. Well, he definitely died at 60, and... Organ donation is truly a miracle. He's from, he grew up in South Carolina, moved to North Carolina, attended UNCW, got a degree in business, cystic fibrosis. Um, uh, he, was, he had talked to the Star News, I guess, over the several decades. They got a story in here about him in 2010. 1990, doctors at the University of North Carolina Hospitals told Graham, who was 28 at the time, his odds of surviving the double lung transplant would be about 50-50. And that's that's a lot worse odds than your surgeon saying, "Oh, you're gonna you're gonna survive." Groundbreaking thirteen hour surgery, so that fits yeah. fits fits well with um, the fourteen hours you were telling me. Took place October eighth, nineteen ninety. Yep. Yeah, and he died last year, so in twenty twenty two. 
That's yeah, 32, that's 32 years. years. That's even that's even longer. Uh, again, unless the lady um, is still alive in Ireland. But in terms well, you of, said hers was single lung, so maybe oh, that's a good point. Lung. Yeah, that's a good point. That's amazing. But yeah. one of the things that um, he contacted me when he found out, and this is Graham Howell, by the yep. way, and and since he is featured um, in the Star News, um, I'm assuming his identity is okay to share on the air. Um, but he became my um, sponsor, I guess, if, if you were to come up with the term. Mm-hmm. So he gave me his phone number, and he said, like, if you have any problems, any concerns, any fears, call me anytime. Okay. So when I was recovering after the surgery, he was my go-to guy. And I'd be like, oh, so this is happening here. He's like, don't worry about it. This is what happens. You know, so he was, it was very helpful. And if you're thinking of getting it, um, there are organizations and people you can talk to. And, you know, to me, it's one thing to talk to a surgeon or surgical team who perform these operations. Mm -hmm. But I I think it really helps to talk to somebody that has gone through it. Yeah, who has survived it. You know, so, um, yeah, if you guys have any questions that you want to send to the host, um, Jason McCoy or, or Nelson Bollier, if you have any questions and um, that you want to ask me. Yeah. Um, well, what they can do is they can put their questions in the comments of this podcast even. Okay. And then you can go on. I can give you um, the ability to go on and, and provide some answers, share whatever you'd like, whatever you're comfortable with. So that would definitely be one way you guys could do it is just. Um, or I was thinking if we get enough, maybe we could revisit this. Yeah, we get enough. Maybe we can do some kind of um, follow up. online follow-up in yeah. the form of a forum or radio show or YouTube show or something. Um, and so, then we could answer your questions directly. Yeah, in real time. We could do it in real time, actually. Um, if we did it with YouTube Live, we could do it by people literally commenting right there in real time. If we did it in this format, we could just have people potentially even call in. Okay. Um, and have them on the air. Uh, yeah, the Graham Howell story is interesting in that he um, he received his lungs from UNC's medical school. Yeah. And he also, it looks like, found out um, who donated the, the lungs. It says that it was a motorcyclist in Florida who had died in a traffic accident. Hmm. So I'm guessing you never broached that subject with him and asked him about no. whether he knew, yeah. I think that's a personal thing that yeah, yeah. everybody has to grapple with. Yeah. Think about. All right. Well, I think that will just about do it. Um, if you have any additional questions, Bob, that you feel like were not explored, um, we can come back and do an addendum show. Um, if the audience have any questions, they can leave those in the comments of this podcast and we'll either try to answer those on the comments thread and or come back and revisit some of these questions in a later show. I do appreciate all of your time and your attention, and I hope you found value in this show. We'll be back at our regularly scheduled time next Friday. Thanks for listening.